I want to start out talking about that there's really two different kinds of people in the world, okay? Uh, we're going to be talking about these two types of people in uh, the book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Ephesians chapter 2. So you can find your way there. But these two types of people that the world would tell us are we have good people and we have bad people, right? We've all probably heard this before. Good people and bad people. And for the first 17 years of my life, I understood myself to be fundamentally good. That was like a foregone conclusion for me. Uh, I didn't cuss hardly at all, probably ever. Um, I didn't drink as a minor. I was a teen at the time. Um, I, I wasn't mean or I wasn't really cruel to other people. I helped other people as much as a teenager really wants to help other people. Um, I was happy until I discovered that my definition of good was really something that was fabricated. It was really something that um, I had either self-created and at the time of the church I was going to was really supported by my church. And so on a weekly, best, uh, weekly basis, I would hear messages that really landed in this theme, okay? So you could take all the message I heard for probably um, 13 to 15 years of my life and wrap it up in this one phrase. Do this, don't do this. That was my entire um, growing up years. Do this, don't do this. Do these good things, don't do these bad things, and somehow God will accept me. So I heard all during that time for years and years and years and years. And so my vision for life was to do just that. It was, in fact, to do just a little bit more good than bad. It wasn't like, hey, I want to do as much good as I can do and, as mu- and the least amount of bad things I could do. It was, for me, it was like, mm, where's the line? Just a little more good than bad. And someday I would stand before God in heaven, he would pull out his giant scale, he would throw all my good works on one side and all my bad works on the other side, and hopefully it tipped in my favor at least just a tiny bit. And God would look at me and say, good job, Jason. It was close, but you tipped it in the right direction. That's a good thing for you. And then kind of like a game show host, he would turn his back like this, and door number three would open, and heaven would be there, my prize, and I would walk through, and I would say, look how good I am. Look what I achieved. Look what I got. Maybe you grew up this way. Um, Honestly, many of us have backgrounds where we grew up Catholic, which was me, Methodist, Lutheran, Baptist, maybe you're from a charismatic church or Pentecostal church or a non-denominational church, and maybe you heard exactly that same message, do this, don't do that. Maybe that's how you grew up also. But today I want to talk to you about a passage that really opened my eyes to the truth of, of that idea. The idea that there's a greater authority that's bigger than me. I'm not allowed to kind of go through life and just make up my own stuff. But there's someone who's greater, who speaks into what does it mean to be good? What does it mean to be bad? This greater authority that also speaks into the actual condition of my heart, right? Actual condition of what my works really look like. And the actual authority in my life who speaks to providing for me in spite of that stuff. Today, I want to redefine all this in light of the Bible. And so we're going to look at Ephesians, not Ephesus, Ephesians 
And uh, so if you want to pull out one of the Bibles in front of you, you can do that. Uh, we're going to be on page 634. It's a quick, easy way to get it, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you have your own Bible, which is awesome, uh, you can flip over to Ephesians. It's kind of hard to find. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. It's toward the back of the Bible, and so you can find it. And I think it's going to be a good morning. I'm excited about it. We're going to be talking right off the beginning uh, a very interesting verse. Verse 1, and here's what it says on the screen behind me. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. You see, Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, and he's kind of trying to get them uh, back on track. They've been kind of maybe a little bit wayward, maybe lost the point of what in the world is going on in their lives. And he's saying, let's remember where you came from, okay? And I think this is a good exercise for every single one of us in this room. He says this, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. What does it mean to be dead? What does that actually mean? Because when you think about the people in this room, we would probably not describe each other as being dead, right? We're living. We're walking around. We're doing things. We have jobs. We have families and all these things, and we're coming here, and it's very much full of life, right? But I don't think this passage is talking about physical life, but rather it's talking about the spiritual dimension of who we are, And he's saying that we are spiritually dead because of our trespasses and our sins. What does it mean, spiritually dead? How does that play out? Well, it means that we, before Christ, are resistant, right? And we are insensitive to who God is in our lives. I mean, honestly, we don't want any part of him. We're able to love things, but we're able to love all the wrong things. And we can't love the right thing, which is, in, which is Jesus, because we are dead. Dead people do dead things, which is nothing of value. So how do you know if you're dead or not? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, Now, the natural person does not accept what pertains to the Spirit of God, for to him it's foolishness. And he cannot understand it. So people who are dead can't accept the wisdom of God. They can't accept the things that are coming for God as something that is important and applicable to their lives. It's not possible. They see these things as foolish. I see it all the time on Facebook with friends that I have who will hold other things above God. They will hold science as the ultimate authority above God. It will hold family above the ultimate authority of God or their perspective or whatever that may be. And they see the Bible and they see God as foolish. It's a good indication that there's deadness inside spiritually. Someone who's resistant to God's authority. Maybe somebody who just doesn't want to submit to God's authority at all. That would be a good description of a, a dead person. But what really makes us dead is our sin. And sometimes we can look at our lives and we can look at our sin and we can kind of go, eh, I don't know, I don't really see that. But I think probably the greatest sin, and the sin that is probably the most overlooked, because I think we can easily pick out sins that we go, that's a bad one, that's a bad one. But the biggest one, I think, is pride. It's where the whole thing started. This idea that back in Genesis with pride, that Adam and Eve wanted to be self-sufficient from God. They felt like they could be like God. They didn't need God. They could be on their own, and that's the greatest pride there is. Is that not exactly what we do? That we live lives of pride. We, We live lives of autonomy, right? We live lives of independence. We don't want to have God a part of our lives. 
And so we live this prideful, autonomous life. Some people, in their trespasses and sin, they pursue other things other than God, like pornography, for example. They may pursue pornography because of pleasure, this desire for pleasure, this desire to escape, rather than embracing that God is the ultimate pleasure in our lives. We don't need that. Maybe it could be status, or maybe it's acceptance. That's what we pursue. We don't realize like, man, we are so fully accepted by Jesus. Jeremiah says it like this. He talks about our heart. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the status of our hearts. That's the status of our spiritual life pre-Jesus is that we are dead. And so in our deadness, we really only have kind of three options. Here they are. Here's the first one. In our deadness, we can try to be holy or try to be holy enough on our own. Okay, so that's one option. So in our deadness, we try to be holy or try to be holy enough to try to earn God's favor. Good grief. It's, it's New Year's Day. How many of us will resolve to do any of these things, right? We'll decide we're going to read our Bible every day. We're going to be friendly to a coworker who annoys us. We're going to quit smoking or partying or drinking too much. Or we're going to quit sleeping around. Or we're going to regularly serve our communion. But why? For a person who's dead inside, we want God to notice how good we are. That's our motive. That's what drives a dead person to pursue that. Isaiah 64, 6, you've probably heard this one. It says, We've all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The actual word for this is like a menstrual garment. It says we'll all fade away like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind will take us away. That's the reality of our good works. When we're trying to be holy ourselves, that's the reality. That's what the Bible says about our works when they're done from a dead status. John Piper put it this way. He says, we will never get to the bottom of our sinfulness. In fact, no one knows the extent of our sinfulness. Like, I think there's been times in my life where I've honestly have looked at my life and thought, oh, I'm not so bad. I'm really not that bad. As a Christian and as a non-Christian, I thought, oh, I'm probably pretty good. I'm doing, I'm tracking well. And I think that's a, a mode of self-deception. I think that's where Satan wants me to be. Because he doesn't want me to rely on Jesus, and he wants me to feel like I'm okay. In the words of Matt Chandler, he says this, you have no shot of being holy on your own, because dead people can't do anything that living people can do. You see, I think we can even take good things and we twist them, because I think that's kind of how messed up we are. We can take something good, like we're going to go feed the homeless, right? That's the plan, we're going to do that. But apart from Jesus, what might be our motive? Well, it might be to make us feel better. We do a good thing that helps us to feel better. I don't know how many trips I've taken uh, kids and teens and other adults on mission trips, and I hear it every time. I think I benefited more than the people I served. And I kind of go, well, that could be good. It could be a good thing. Or if your motive is to feel better about yourself, that could be a bad thing. Why do you do it? like, oh, wow, look, I did this. What a great thing. Maybe it's, you could say, well, I do this because I'm trying to make the difference, a difference in the life of someone else, potentially. 
That's not a bad thing, right? Well, no. But if your motive behind that is to get God to notice you, you're like, God, look what I did. I spent all this time. I worked with these people. I made their lives better. Look what I did. Look what I did. And that's the problem. Look what I did is totally the issue. So in our deadness, we try to be holy. We try to be holy enough on our own. Second thing, in our deadness, we compare our sinfulness to others, and we say that we're not so bad. Second problem that we do. We look at our lives, every single person in this room, and we could quickly point out one person who's worse than us. Every single person who's in prison, right? Like, I'm not in prison, so I must be better than all those people, right? Isn't that not how we think? But we should be really comparing ourselves to God. And so there's this continuum, there's this line. And we kind of focus on the left side of this line, which says, here's me, and here's a murderer, and here's a drug dealer, and look, we're, I'm much better than them. But when we scan across the line to God, who's way over there, and we compare who we are to who God is, we're pretty despicable. There's a large, large gap between us as a result of our sin. Uh, Isaiah says this in chapter 6. He said he was standing before God, and his response was, Woe is me, for I am lost. I don't know that we see God that way. I don't know that we encounter God in a way that we go, Woe is me. <laughs> the expanse is great because I'm dead. For I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In our deadness, we compare ourselves to other people rather than comparing ourselves to the Creator, the Holy God of the universe. Third thing we do, a lot of people do this, in our deadness, we embrace sin. So we try to be holy, we compare ourselves to other people to make ourselves feel better, or the third one is, we embrace our sins. Many of us really cherish being dead, unfortunately. We embrace our sin, and we think by embracing our sin, there's freedom in that. Or we think by changing laws to make ourselves feel like our sins are okay, and to validate our sins. We do that when the Bible says contrary. It's what we do. We justify them. Or we just say, I just really don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It's just much easier to do that in life than it is to try to pursue God. John 8, 34 says, here's the problem with that. It says, Jesus was talking to a group of people. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's the reality of sin, right? It's controlling. It never, ever, ever satisfies I think in the moment we think it does, you know, or maybe it's temporary, but on the long term it doesn't. But sin always escalates. It always leaves you and me with a hunger for more, right? I mean, why else do people move from soft porn to hard porn? Why do people move from looking inappropriately at a woman to uh, an affair? Because it doesn't satisfy, right, along the way. And you have this desire, and we have this desire to have more. That's what sin does. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. 
And the reason we're a slave to sin is because we're dead. Let's go on to verse 2 here. It says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now in work, the spirit that is now in the work of the sons of disobedience among whom we've all lived. Let me just stop there. This is an active thing, right? In which we once all walk. Like we've all either are there or we have been there. We all should either identify that where we were once dead or we currently are dead. Because that's how we are functioning. We are functioning in sin. We're following the course of this world, which is basically, if you heard this in the United States, look out for number one. Look out for yourself. It's called autonomy. That's what we want. We want to be the God of our own universe, right? In the middle of that, making the decisions for us and everybody else. This verse even goes on to say that we follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's basically saying that sin is not neutral, and we are not neutral. Does that make sense? So we are not in the middle between God and Satan when we're born. And so we're not born neutral. We're born on this side. In fact, we are born sinners. We exist as sinners. We follow sin. And that makes us an adversary of God. That puts us over here automatically, not in the middle. There's not a person in this room that has not committed a sin. Not a single person. I often think about this when, when I'm around my, my little girls, especially probably a few years ago. This was probably definitely more obvious to me. And I think about the terrible twos. Anybody experience that? How about the psycho threes? You on that one? They both exist. And I think I would see my kids, like we would go into like Target, and I'm holding my sweet little girl's hand, and we're walking into Target, and she would see something she'd want. I'm like, no, honey, you can't have that. And she would do this, the limp, the limp body thing, or she's just kind of, you know, and I don't even know how they do it. And then all of a sudden they're on the floor, and they're screaming, and you're going, oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm such a terrible parent. What am I doing? I didn't teach my kid to do that. I didn't one day come home and get mad at my wife and lay, like, oh, Janelle, fall on the floor and start screaming. I, I never taught my kids to do that, ever. It didn't happen. But that's the reality of sin. It's embedded. It's our nature. It's our identity, right? It's who we are. And so we're not morally neutral. And our deadness wasn't a choice. It's who we are. Romans uh, 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Because we are an adversary to God, we're on this other end of the spectrum, God's wrath is upon us. These people who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Here's another one, Romans 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent, in- man, I can't say anything today. Hold on. Impenitent. Okay. He says you're storing up wrath for yourself. 
on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So that's the current status of our deadness. That may be who you were, or that may be who you are. But, I love this. I remember this next part, but, verse 4, I remember being a 15-year-old and believing this. I remember getting to the point where I understood that I was dead and that I needed help. It was pretty obvious to me. I remember being at a conference up in South Dakota, going to a conference, sitting in a seat, just like you guys are, someone talking about this stuff and something happening inside of me that was going, Jason, that's you. I remember that very, very clearly. And I did everything I possibly could do to resist that and get out of there. It's exactly what I did, and I made it out of there. Because I saw the writing on the wall for me. I saw that I was definitely dead, that I was a slave to this thing called sin. Piper says this, he says, you will never know the great love of God unless you see that you're dead. Unless you get to that point where you understand that you're a sinner in need of a savior, you'll never get there. Step one. So here we go, verse four. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. God is rich in mercy, meaning he has an abundance of it. He has a lot of mercy just there, ready for the taking. And even though we're dead in our sins, God does not give us what we deserve, which is his wrath, his judgment, because mercy is deliverance from judgment. And that's what he says, God being rich in mercy. And he loves us, his great love, which is active. It's not a passive kind of love like you love your car or you love that painting or I love tacos. It's not something like that. It's active. In fact, his love is so active that it caused him to be sacrificial, self-sacrificial, to inflict pain upon himself. Can you imagine that? Because he loved us so much that he was willing to inflict that pain upon himself and his son to die for us, to die for people who are dead, to be made alive. See, Jesus was alive, and he was the victor over sin through the resurrection, and we too are made alive through that same resurrection. He saves us by his grace, his undeserved favor and generosity. That's an amazing, amazing thing. His undeserved favor, it rises up, and it raises us up to be next to him. That's what the next verses say, verse 6. And it raised us up to be with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Made alive means that we're no longer an adversary of God. We no longer see the things of God as foolish. We see God as our friend, as our father. Sorry, Siri's talking to me. I kid you not. Anyway, made alive means that we no longer have to live a life resistant to God, but instead 
we can give it to him. You know, when I think about the future and I think about life with God, I think about life now and how I do I really understand what God's grace means? Do I really understand what God's holiness means? But there'll come a point in time that every single person in this room and every single person on this planet will get that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to get it. We'll come to the point where we'll stand before God and we'll realize the reality of our former sin and how truly significant the sacrifice of Jesus was on our behalf and how big of a deal that was. And so if you're sitting today and you don't know, like, you're, like you would say, I'm not a Christian, you kind of have a choice. You have to kind of figure this out. And the choice you have is, do you believe the Bible to be true or do you believe it not to be true? Because if you believe it to be true, you have to jump this stuff and go, man, I think this is me, right? Or I think this is who I used to be, right? Or you can say it's false, that there's some other greater authority in your life. Or just be honest and say that greater authority is you. Because that's what it was for me for the first 17 years of my life. The greatest authority was not Jesus It was not even my church. It was me. And I had to get honest about that. Verse 8. This is probably my favorite. This is the one that impacted my life in such a way where it changed how I saw all this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. The gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Tim Keller said, We are not saved by living according to Jesus' words, but by faith in what he has done. That's how we enter into this relationship with the creator of the universe. Is we don't take all the things that Jesus said and we live by those, but we have faith in the very thing that he did, which was to die on the cross for our sins, to pay for our sins, and to be resurrected and overcome that sin. On our behalf. The act of making us live is what Jesus does for us. It's not something that we can do. No one is ever going to sit before God and testify of their goodness and how they deserve to be there. No one. Not a single person is going to do that. I think some of us have been told that. I was told that. That somehow I was going to sit before God and I was going to be able to, I guess in my pride, say, God, this is how good I am and so I deserve to be here. It's not how it works. According to this verse, it says we're saved by grace through faith. It's not, of what, not what I do. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. So that I can't boast about how good I am. I can't boast about, look at door number three, I earned that. They didn't, but I did. I'm good. I believe when we re- meet God face to face, which will happen, we will either do one of two things. We will either revel in the cross. We will either boast in how awesome Jesus is on my behalf. Or we will cower in our shame. It's one of the two. We're not neutral. Romans three twenty three is a great passage. If you've never read this, it's worth reading. 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners, every single one of us. None are perfect. 
and we're justified by his grace as a gift. We are made right with God because of God's work in our life. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For whom God put forward as a propitiation for our blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, in his divine restraint, he had passed over former sins. So it's saying he's been very, very patient for a long time and Jesus entered in at the right moment. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one whose faith. It is God who saves, not me. It is God who saves, not you. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. There's no boasting in anything that we did because God is the one who's just and God is the one who justifies. God is the one who makes us right with him. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, it's excluded because of the law of faith. God offers life. Romans 10, 9, 10, I think it's a great passage too. It says this, if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I think there's a lot of people in the world who have done something in their brain to make them think that they're good with God but there's never been anything inside their heart and their soul that God has made them alive, has resurrected their dead soul and made it alive. I think there's a lot of people like that, unfortunately. So when I was 17 years old, I went, on a, uh, went to a conference. And uh, this conference was in Indiana. I grew up in Nebraska. Uh, I was, like I said, a good kid. I'd been involved in a youth group for a few years with some friends of mine that were Christians, and I was not. Um, I found my name on a prayer sheet in our church saying that, pray for Jason to get saved, uh, which I rebelled against and thought, I'll show you. Uh, and all these things happened in my life. And when I was 17, I went on this youth conference and uh, basically went because there were lots of cute girls going, so I'll just be honest. So I was a teenager, but I went on this, to this conference, and honestly, it was completely 100% uneventful. Like, there was really not a single thing about that conference that I remember. Challenge 89, that's it. That's all I remember, nothing else more than that. I got the t-shirt. But when I drove home on a bus, and my friend Mark was in the back of the bus and was having muscle spasms, I came to grips in that moment when I saw him later on about two or three in the morning that my friend Mark, who was a Christian, could possibly die. It's a pretty crazy thing that was going on at the same time. I don't even, to this day, I don't understand. But I remember that moment, and I remember experiencing and understanding that life is frail, and this could actually happen. And I went back to my seat, and here's what happened. I remembered all these things that we just talked about. I remember my youth pastor sitting down with me at Arby's and sharing the gospel with me and me rejecting it. I remembered sitting at a conference, a youth conference up in South Dakota, Dakota and rejecting the gospel. 
I remember my friends telling me about Jesus and how much he meant to them, and I rejected it. And in that moment, it all came back to me, and I understood that I was dead and that I needed a Savior. And in that moment, sitting on a bus at 2 in the morning, driving back to Nebraska and who knows where I was at, I prayed and I said exactly what this verse says. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's exactly what happened as I prayed by myself on a bus in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus came into my life in that moment the Holy Spirit changed me and moved me from being dead to alive like this. And my life has never been the same, ever. And I would never trade what's going on in my life now for what was then. A life with no purpose, a life with no meaning, a life with no direction, a life without Jesus to today, a life with Jesus that brings these other things with it. Big difference. Big difference. And so that's my plead with you this morning. Two pleads. One, if you're not a Christian, consider these things. Go home, read this scripture again. Pray. Praying is just talking to God. God, show me what, what is going on in my heart. I don't feel like I even love you at all. I feel like I'm an adversary of you. Maybe that's what you need to pray. Maybe you're ready. Maybe you're ready today and you're like, you know what, God, you're doing something amazing. And I see that I am dead. I see that I'm a sinner in need of a great Savior. I see that I can't be holy enough. I see that I can't change the rules. I can't do any of these things. And I need Jesus. So we're going to take a couple minutes. And James is going to come up and we're going to have communion in just a few and I would just encourage you before you take communion today to think about that. If you are not a Christian, consider Jesus. Do everything, like beg you to consider Jesus. He's amazing. And he loves us while we were still sinners. For those of us that are Christians, you may be looking at life now in 2017 and going, man, I just haven't been doing very well. I would challenge you to remember Remember that you were dead, and remember that now you have been made alive. And that same faith that you put in Jesus to save you is the same faith that will change you. Because it's the Holy Spirit working in you. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. It's going to be great. I hope you guys come back and, and listen to this amazing story of how God is at work in each and every one of us. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.